If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the historian Ian Mortimer. He's the author of a series of time traveller's guides that take readers into the streets, smells and experiences of different eras. And his latest is a guide to Regency Britain. Though popular depictions of the era often focus on the middle and upper class worlds, such as those depicted by Jane Austen. But the chasm between rich and poor at this time was hugely significant and can't be ignored. Putting the questions to Ian was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So your Time Traveller's Guide to Regency Britain tells readers everything they need to know about many elements of the Georgian era, uh, such as criminals, diseased beggars, hardship and inequality, for example. But perhaps that isn't the first thing we think about when we think about this era, Um, perhaps thanks to Austin, thanks to Regency architecture and so on. Um, Can you introduce listeners to your book and and your approach to the era? Yeah. Now, the idea of a time traveller's guide is that you actually can go there and see it for yourself. So if you could go to Regency Britain, what you can see, what you can eat, what you can smell, and how are people going to treat you, which diseases might affect you, which doctors might kill you, etc. It's it's an immersive approach, which is uh, an attempt to do two things, really. Firstly, it's an attempt to make this period really accessible uh, and exciting and open people's eyes to Um, what was going on at all levels of society. And secondly, it's an attempt to allow people to see how they can contextualise their own time, what it's like to be alive in any age, not just then. Most history is about a particular point in time viewed without the complications of other times. The Time Traveller's Guide series is an attempt to do what I introduced in the first book, which was... um, uh, it, it derives from a, a, a line from W.H. Auden. Uh, he said, um, in order to understand your own country, you need to have lived in at least two others. And in my case, I introduced the idea that in order to understand your own time, you need to have come to terms with at least two others. So this is the fourth period. And by looking at Regency, by looking at the previous books, which were medieval, Elizabethan, Restoration, I'm hoping that people can understand what it's like to be alive in any age. Um, And so it's at a deeper level, it's doing that. So it's history doing two things at once. But as you say, we're we're overwhelmed by um, images of elegance and uh, Jane Austen-like refinement and politeness. And that period is so attractive for those reasons. Um, But something I just said, all parts of society This book does go a long way beyond the the Jane Austen world. Jane Austen's an exceptionally good writer, and she um, introduces the interplay of the upper middle class and the lower upper class beautifully, and their fears and their hopes and aspirations and the personal elements involved. But there's an awful lot of Regency Britain that she would simply not have known about because 
slums of Liverpool where perhaps seven, eight hundred people are crammed in per acre um, living in squalor is something that she would not want to would not have wanted to know about because most people didn't. Even people who went to Liverpool didn't see it. So this is an exploration of uh, a, a very different Regency from the one normally portrayed on your television screens. Right. So it, it's a vast scope of history that, that you're looking at. And as you say, this is the fourth fourth time you've done this, the fourth era you've looked at in this way. Um, and how do you start looking at an era like this? Where, where do you begin? How do you decide what elements to include for the reader? Uh, um, I often say when you answer the question, where do you begin by saying you have to go for a long walk? Uh, because so much of this comes from thinking through um, where we stand. What do people already know? Uh in real terms, I mean, it's it starts from a lot of reading, a lot of reading, because there is an awful lot of material there to be discovered in people's diaries, in official accounts. Um, <clears throat> but there's also an awful lot to be discovered through being in the places, looking at the art. So it, the process of writing one of these books is as immersive as the text hopes, well, hopefully the text will be for its readers. Um, I do visit the sites. I do uh, listen to an awful lot of the music from the time. I I start off one of the processes uh, 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 by buying a, a whole lot of coins from the period. Because coins are works of art, but they've threaded their way through people's pockets and purses and bought uh, milk and bread and houses and bandages and sex. or what, what is paid for everything. And yet these things are works of art and they come down intact to us and i treasure them as uh you know, emblems of people's lives which those smiling king's faces that have seen so many things that happen over the years so it's a, a whole multiplicity thing a multiplicity of things but it's it's a very immersive process writing a time traveler's guide and i've got to say the actual writing is a delight but it's also very very difficult because you have to pretend to know everything um, well, the coin seems like a, a really interesting place to start. Uh, and touching upon that, um, your your account picks up on the fact that there's this vast wealth inequality. Lots of people had many coins. Some people didn't have as many. What can you say about the the vast we wealth inequality of this period and how it marks the, the era that you're writing about? It, it is astonishing, the, the difference of rich and poor. This is something you really do get from Jane Austen when you read the, the text closely. In the fear in the upper middle classes, they'll sink down that social spectrum and, uh, uh, and won't have the money for uh, uh, their own carriage. They won't be able to provide um, the, the, the privileged positions for their children. Um, the, there are two ways, really, of looking at the wealth inequality, and most people are going to understand the very nature of wealth inequality in, our own, in, in respect of our own times, where we see extraordinary wealth inequality. And if we consider the Jeff Bezos of this world and the, the super, super rich, you know, the, your people who are worth more than 20 billion pounds, um, well, they are, in terms of multiples of what people can earn per year, they are way out there. There's no inequality in Regency quite to compare with the super, super rich of the modern world. However, that is a very, very few, small number of people. If you look at people generally, if you compare the upper class and the upper middle class of um, Regency Britain, so really the top one and a half percent in terms of income, with 
the 50% to 70% of the working class. That inequality is far greater than its equivalent today. So that inequality then between the upper classes on average, upper middle classes on average, and the working class on average, it's it's roughly works out at around uh, 26, 27 times as much income for the upper and middle classes as for for the working class. Today, if you compare the top 1% with the the bottom 50%, the the multiple is about six, six and a half times. So there's much less inequality for most people in society today. And if you look at what people could actually afford to buy in the Regency, this comes across very, very starkly. If you, um, for example, If you look at uh, prices using the Bank of England's inflation calculator and extrapolate from that, what could people actually buy? What purchasing power did they have? You realise that an awful lot of working class families, in fact, the average working class family is getting on by on a modern income that would be about £3,500 a year, maybe £4,000 a year. That's your average working class family. And when you look at their diets, you realise how tight things were. They can't afford to eat meat. Um, They frequently can't afford to drink beer. Um, They drink tea, which is reusing the the tea leaves. Um, They get bi-red by sweetening it and and drinking it with milk, not because that's the way they want it, but that is because that's the only way to make palatable drink they can afford. Rush lights are very affordable ways of lighting, but they're smelly and dirty, and their their standard of living is, we would consider appalling. Um, And it's really to the credit of people that so many of them got by in such circumstances. The inequality of society is truly horrifying. And when you start looking in some of the slummer areas, then you you will recoil in horror. You already mentioned Liverpool. Um, where where else in Britain would you have kind of found these conditions? And what did you find out about life expectancy in this period as well? Uh, well, any industrial town is going to um, be a challenge to get by in if you're a, a working class person or or even lower middle class. Um, the society was not geared up for the benefit of every member. The Ancien Regime, that's before the the, the Great Reform Act, before um, our slow equivalent of the French Revolution, which is more representation in government. Before all that, the government really is operating for the benefit of the proprietors of the land, the upper middle classes and the upper classes, uh, and obviously the, the, the institution, the monarchy itself. So it's not trying to look after anybody in an industrial town. So if you're in Manchester, or if you're in Liverpool, or if you're in Glasgow, or Preston, or Ashland-on-the-Line, or the, the, the potteries, wherever you are in England, which is industrial, you have this great problem that the very wealth of the place starts to impoverish the workers. It's a huge irony, but you see it happen all over the place. Um, Basically, the prosperity and the uh, jobs on offer attract newcomers who have got nothing to sell but their labour, their uh, working for wages. Um, So they move to these places and then they have to compete with everybody else for what unskilled labour there is um, or skilled labour if they're lucky. So they will inevitably, by 
by going there, have driven down the wages being paid because employers can get away with paying less. And at the same time, this population expansion in these industrial towns means that the landed proprietors who own the land around charge extra for, for developing the land. So a, a plot that in Liverpool would have been a, once upon a time, would have been a house and garden, now becomes three houses along the front with a, a passage underneath and eight, course, uh, eight houses and where the garden would have been. And you end up with several hundred people living in these houses um, and an intensity of occupation, all trying to earn as much money as possible, all prepared to do practically anything to, to, to earn a crust. As a result, if you're working class in Liverpool in this period, life expectancy at birth sinks to about 16. If you're in um, Preston or Ashton-under-Lyne or, or places like that, you can see uh, in the unsewered streets, the really poor areas, life expectancy at birth sink to below 14, which is the lowest I've come across anywhere in any time in this country. And I, I would be surprised if you could find lower expectations of birth anywhere else in the world. Right. Yeah, there's some pretty staggering statistics there. Um, and uh, obviously, there are lots of factors contributing to this this life expectancy. And you've already mentioned um, the industrial towns that uh, many found themselves in in this period. What sort of burgeoning industries did many find themselves working in? And what sort of new health risks were they posing? Uh, well, the new industries is the manufacturing. I mean, Britain's not known as the workshop of the world. It is the workshop of the world in this period. I mean, it's a uh, the, the cotton manufacturing, um, woolens, um, fa factories driven by water, factories driven by steam. Um, obviously, these then require further industries to support them. So the coal industry takes off much more. Um, the, the risks they're facing are um, both to health and uh, disease and injury. And the diseases aren't just infectious diseases, which are rife in areas where you have slum accommodation, but uh, they're also diseases of dust. Across the whole 19th century, the big, probably the biggest occupational health threat to people is dust. And in the, the, the places where you can have gas lighting and therefore the steam engines that are powering these places running 24 hours a day, the, 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 the heat is incredible, the dust is incredible, and the lung diseases that the, the, um, uh, uh, are result are truly horrific. But then there's the injuries as well, as, as young people, often workers in factories are very often young, they simply don't get a chance to get, get, don't get a chance to grow up. They get drawn into machines and suffer terrible injuries. Um, as one vivid case in the, the memoirs of Robert Blinko, a 10-year-old girl got Drapped, drawn into a, 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 a cotton uh, machine, and it drew her in and then threw her around. And Blinko describes her blood being thrown around like as if it was water twirled from a mop, which is a very evocative uh, image of you know, the mental damage too. The mental uh, state of these people must have been terrible. Um, and as far as life expectancy goes, now if you're in the cutlery industries. And in, uh, especially in Sheffield, um, you are old in that profession if you make it to 28. 90% are dead by 40 and 100% are dead by 50. It's a horrific time to be working class and desperate to sell your labour. So, um, it, it, yeah, the, 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 you can carry on like this. I mean, the coal mines, whatever it is, it, whichever way you look, 
the lack of care for the working man and woman in society. It is truly appalling. Hmm. You you make this distinction um, in your book between uh, rural and and urban poverty, and I, I guess we're perhaps guilty of um, idealizing uh, rural life as idyllic or um, some, you know romanticizing it a little bit. What 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 was the case for um, poorer people living in in rural settings? Um, they're much better off because they have space and they have fresh air. They have ventilation. They are not crowded in by dust. Um, the space is actually a frequently underestimated quality to rural living. You haven't got to, frankly, wade across sort of six inches of excrement to get to your front door um, or back door, whichever. You know, that there is ways of getting rid of things. There are water supplies. There are um, firewood supplies that mean you don't have to break up a door in order, or steal a door from someone in order to try and keep warm. There are many more facilities when you have space. Life expectancy, as a result, is much, much higher in the countryside than it is in the industrial towns. Um, you're looking at 35 to 40 life expectancy at birth in a, a county like I'm living in now, Devon. Um, so you, you're far better off. On the other hand, wages are very, very low for agricultural labourers. And there is a marked distinction between your prosperous yeoman who owns his own land and can... Um, bring in an income of maybe more excess of 200 pounds a year, sometimes much more than that, um, through employing agricultural labourers and those agricultural labourers themselves, who in the 1790s, 1800s, will probably be working for, for eight shillings a week, something like that, and women probably for about half to two thirds of that, and children for a fraction of that. Uh, so many people go into the services and um, work as servants, because that way at least they give them board and lodging, which keeps body and soul together, obviously. But then you might not get paid, might not be paid very much at all, three pounds a year or something like that. Uh, so the, the, the rural lot is very tough too. Having said that, I mean, the visitors who come here look at English cottages and think they are beautiful, picturesque. And so the, the, the foreigner's impression um, is that our, our, our rural folk live in um, some degree of refinement. When you go in those houses, though, and look at what they have and how they live, you'll realise it's tough. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And most crucially, judges thereafter were able to give lesser penalties. Uh, they didn't have to hang somebody who was found uh, guilty of a capital offence. And that, that's really important because until then, even if you were seven years of age, if the, the penalty had been capital or the crime had been a capital offence, the judge had to uh, uh, sentence you to death. So after 1823, we start to see the light. It's uh, a, a momentous act. Yes, it sounds tough all round. Uh, and what kind of, of welfare or charitable help was on offer at this time? Was there any sense of um, social responsibility or did that come a bit later on? Uh, social responsibility is there, but it has evolved over the centuries from the medieval idea that the donor of money for the poor is doing it for the benefit of his soul or her soul, rather than the benefit of the person um, you know, the, the, the poor people to whom you give. It's almost as if the poor are a vehicle for the souls of the rich. Now, in this country, we, we took a lead in this in the 16th century with the rise of Puritanism and the eventual passing of the great um, 
poor law act of what, first one in 1597, then 1601, whereby communities were forced to tax local uh, incomes in order to pay for the poor of a parish, which is a truly remarkable uh, social development. And it meant that 100 years later, when there were a series of uh, terrible famines across Europe, everywhere in Europe saw its population um, literally decimated, reduced by a tenth. Um, France saw two million people starve to death. Scandinavia did. Scotland saw a tenth of its population either starve or emigrate. Um, England did not see that terrible uh, toll on its population. Uh, so the, the poor law, the old poor law, has kept going. And that, in this period, is still active. It's very expensive now for local um, uh, landowners. They have to pay a fair bit towards the upkeep of the poor. Um, and that money goes towards maintaining um, indoor relief, that's the workhouse, or outdoor relief, that's payments to people who are able to earn a bit of money outside their own homes. Um, so if you're uh, a widow with six children um, in well, wherever, um, you probably well, you won't have any way of working for enough money to feed a family that size. You could apply to the overseer of the poor for outdoor relief uh, in order to help you feed them. It won't help you with anything else other than food, really, because the money given is a pittance, but it does help people survive. Hmm. You mentioned, um, uh, uh, for, an ex for example, a struggling widow there or a struggling um, family with children. Uh, and one particularly shocking aspect of this extreme poverty um, that struck me were the burial clubs. Could we talk about those? Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, my, my instinct is to say, oh, do we have to? Because they are, in, in some ways, um, they're almost iconic in the, uh, or archetypal, that's a better word to use, archetypal in the, the degree of uh, sadness and depression that comes upon uh, the working class in this uh, country at that time. Uh, a burial club is basically an insurance um, organisation whereby you pay a small amount of money to insure your child uh, in case it should die, um, or he or she should die, that uh, uh, he or she will have a proper Christian burial. Um, what a number of working class families do is insure their children in several burial clubs so that they can actually cash in by the child dying. Um, it's recorded in one 1830s report that if you, if a child uh, was enrolled with a burial club, he or she had a 35% chance of dying in infancy than if he wasn't or if he wasn't enrolled. So people are effectively allowing their children to die so they can actually get some money or they're killing them in order to get some money. And the latter is so shocking to society that the government does have some inspections to see whether this is really going on and finds, yes, there are cases where people are practicing infanticide in order to feed the other children. And it is so basic and yet repugnant to all civilized sensibilities that it, it really is quite, quite disturbing. Um, there are cases of, uh, the one sticks in my mind of a wet nurse who was working for a gentlewoman and uh, her child was ill. And the gentlewoman said to the wet nurse, oh, I, I will send my physician to, 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 to see to the child. And the wet nurse says, oh, don't worry, ma'am, it's enrolled in two burial clubs. In other words, no matter what happens, you know, we're, we're prepared for it. 
and, and rent collectors get told to wait until children die in order to pay the rent, things like this. So at the bottom of society, for the absolute desperate, uh, those who have got nothing, um, you are talking about matters of life and death that are truly horrific. Yes, indeed. Pretty horrible stuff. Um, and I'm afraid my next question doesn't doesn't lift the mood much. Um, I, so I wanted to ask about the the so-called bloody code, um, the the brutal system of justice that, that existed uh, at this time. What 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 was that? Well, the bloody code is uh, the word we use historically to describe a whole raft of legislation, mostly passed in the early 18th century, um, to deter people from turning to crime and mostly theft. And the, the, the number of people who are uh, arrested for theft, as goes to any other crime in this uh, period, is far higher. I mean, you're looking at 90% of people who have um, tried uh, being char- charged with crimes relating to theft in some way or other. And you can see if you've got so little money, so little food, you can understand why people do thieve. Um, now, the bloody code is best understood as a result of um, uh, a way of thinking that is exemplified by Lord Halifax in the 1690s, when he uttered the famous phrase, men are not hanged for stealing horses, but that horses may not be stolen. Now, that idea of deterrent, uh, a deterrence, uh, it, it, it really fuels people's thinking that the greater the penalty you have to pay if you are caught, the less likely you are to commit a crime. Now, we have a totally different way of thinking. We have the um, philosophy that the the greater the likelihood it is that you will get caught, the more unlikely it is you'll commit a crime. If you know you're going to get caught for something, you won't even attempt the crime. Um, But then very few people, um, well, there were very few ways of tracking down, detecting criminals, etc., so therefore, this idea of deterrence, that you'll hang virtually everybody, is uh, prevalent. And you can get hanged for consorting with gypsies, being out at night with a blacked up face, uh, damaging a pond, um, damaging a highway. You know, these are hanging offences. Uh, and anything to do with theft, you know, gamekeepers have the right to shoot you dead. On, for, for trespassing on uh, private property if they believe they are uh, um, going after um, game. So there, there is a, a, a real problem for people who are forced to turn to crime. Now, the fact is, by, by 1800, there's something like 200 uh, capital offences um, uh, on the statute books. And at this point, uh, enters uh, Sir Samuel Romilly, a, a wholly good man in my estimations, because he campaigned tirelessly in order to get rid of the bloody code. Um, and he introduced, I think, five bills to uh, get rid of the penalty, the, the, the penalty of hanging for shoplifting. And he was unsuccessful every single time, but he nevertheless kept on hammering it home in the, the House of Commons that it's not acceptable just to hang people for every crime. And fortunately, his work was taken up by Robert Peel, who in 1823 uh, passed an act which meant not only did most of the bloody code no longer result in uh, hanging of uh, capital punishment, but also, and most crucially, judges thereafter were able to give lesser penalties. Uh, they didn't have to hang somebody who was found uh, guilty of a capital offence. 
And that, that's really important because until then, even if you were seven years of age, if the, the penalty had been capital or the crime had been a capital offence, the judge had to uh, uh, sentence you to death. So after 1823, we start to see the light. It's uh, a, a momentous act. Okay. Well, aside from what you're just saying there about Romilly's reform, which obviously um, very positive thing, uh, most of what we talked about has been pretty bleak. And I want, <laughs> no, the, well, <laughs> well, but perhaps I can ask um, about a happier subject. Was was there any opportunity for um, social mobility? Any examples of people changing their station or bettering themselves in this period? Well, yes, it's an extraordinary period for, on that note. I mean, a lot of the, the self-made, um, we would call them multimillionaires. We would think of them as billionaires. But uh, the people like uh, James Morrison, who was the um, a younger child of an innkeeper, I think he was an orphan uh, of an innkeeper in um, Hampshire or Wiltshire or somewhere like that, he, he worked his way up to uh, join a haberdashery company in London, married the senior partner's daughter, took control of the company. Uh, by 1830, he was worth about a million pounds. By the time of his death, he was worth six million. Six million pounds in the 19th century is a phenomenal fortune. Uh, so people could come from nothing to being one of the richest people in Europe uh, or in the world. Um, there are cases, uh, Philip Rundle was an apprentice uh, from Norton St. Uh, Philip in Somerset. He became an apprentice jeweller. And when he retired, he was worth about, uh, oh, I think it was one and a half million, somewhere in that region, 1.3 million, something like that. Uh, so there are people who come from nothing. And perhaps um, Harriet Mellon's story is the, the most extraordinary of all, because she was the illegitimate daughter of uh, an Irish peasant woman who had a job um, uh, in England, uh, looking after the clo- uh, the costumes of actors and actresses as they trooped around the north, and um, you know he was coming from such a background, he wouldn't have thought things looked that optimistic. But um, Harriet could act a little bit, and uh, she came to the attention of Richard Brinsley Sheridan, who cast her in a role in London, and so she took up acting, and she didn't do badly at it. Um, she was earning about £600 from a year from her acting at, uh, at one stage. But she also caught the eye of um, Thomas Coots of Coots Bank. Thomas Coote asked Harriet Mellon to marry him. And she said yes, despite him being about twice her age in the 70s. They had a very happy marriage for a little while. And when he died, he left control of uh, Coots Bank to her. So she ran a bank in her own name. And when she remarried to the Duke of Buckingham, uh, she was therefore a duchess, but also had her own fortune in the bank. Um, so had a, 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 a fortune of something in the region of one and a half, two million pounds. Um, so extraordinary uh, rags to riches story there. Um, obviously, she incurred the envy and wrath of virtually every other society lady there was. They were very, very snooty about her. But nevertheless, she seemed very happy with both her husbands. And uh, certainly was far better off than when she started in life. All the way through, you can find people in some way or other bettering themselves. Um, obviously, some people lose large amounts of money. Uh, but to, 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 if you can make that break out of the working classes and uh, to a position where you are able to have a certain dignity and you want to earn 
that much more. There are frequently opportunities for people to do so, um, whether through trade or, 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 or marriage or whatever. So, um, yeah, there are people who can join the high life. And boy, in this period, was it a high life. <laughs> the style is wonderful. Absolutely. Um you mentioned, uh, you've talked about Romilly's reform already, and I wondered what other changes in attitude or societal change more generally eventually begin to address these extremes of inequality um, or bring it to more of a close, or where do you choose to end it in your book, for example? Well, we have to remember here the entire Regency period, and I'm talking here about 1789 to 1830, I should have said that right at the start, that's all in the wake of the French Revolution and those ideas of... Uh, equality and fraternity uh, and liberty, which are um, enshrined in that momentous event. Um, now, that means people are constantly rethinking whether it's right to own slaves or trade in slaves. Is it right to be anti-Semitic? People are thinking, is it right that women should not have certain rights? People are thinking all the way through uh, a lot of these conundrums, um, moral problems for the first time. I mean, the, 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 the most obvious answer to this question is um, radicalism and reform, the whole idea of representation and whether people should have the vote or not. And increasing pressure um, through the mass gatherings and especially industrial towns in the north and to a certain extent in London for there to be one man, one vote. Uh, uh, it changes people's attitudes to what government is for. And by 1832, in the Great Reform Act, that has actually changed attitudes, not entirely, but very substantially, in that there is merit in extending the franchise and for the government to look at more interests than simply those of the, the major landowners. So yes, and, and not just the, the, the attitudes against minorities, but also the, the, the responsibilities of government itself, I think I would uh, say are a, a key um, attitude change of this period. That was Ian Mortimer. The Time Traveller's Guide to Regency Britain is published by Bodley Head and is out now. Ian also wrote a feature on Regency Britain for the December 2020 issue of BBC History magazine. You can read that on our website at historyextra.com forward slash regency hyphen inequality. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow for a conversation about werewolves in the ancient world. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.